You're listening to TIP. I think the greatest day for most entrepreneurs, honestly, is the day before they start their business. With these grand hopes, we're about to get into the ring with Tyson. We got this. And then you take that first punch and it's like, what the hell just happened? On today's show, I bring back Mike Michalowicz to discuss entrepreneurship and marketing tactics. Why being better isn't good enough to win customers anymore. Why having no money or experience actually gives someone a shot at their business working? Why a business plan is a waste of time and a bunch more. Mike Michalowicz is a serial entrepreneur who had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies by the age of 35. Confident that he had discovered the formula to success, he became a small business angel investor and lost his entire fortune. Driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies, he decided to start all over again and has devoted his life to the research and delivery of innovative, impactful entrepreneurial strategies. He has also written some of the best-selling books in business, including Profit First, Clockwork, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Fix This Next, and his newest book, Get Different. I always have a great time anytime I get the chance to chat with Mike. He teaches me a ton about business, entrepreneurship, and even building side hustles. I hope you guys enjoy it. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome back Mike McAllitz. Mike, welcome to the show. Robert, is a two-peat. It's good to be back. Your last episode on the show was number 43 for anyone that hasn't heard it yet and is interested in going back to check it out. For those who haven't heard it and might not know who you are, which I think they're crazy if they don't, but give us a uh, quick rundown on your background, who you are, and how you got to where you are today. Today, I am a author. That's my full-time endeavor. And actually, you can see over my left shoulder here, I have my books there strategically positioned. But I'm an entrepreneur my entire adult life. I came from the tech space. I built some businesses. I had good fortune of selling some businesses. Had the misfortune, which actually, in retrospect, is probably the best thing ever. I started an angel investing company. I was like, oh, I'll build tons of small businesses. And that's going to be the pinnacle of my success. And I was horrible at it. I destroyed these businesses. I had no idea what I was doing. And I wiped myself out financially. I actually lost everything except for my family. I lost my home, lost my cars, lost everything. And went through depression as a result. It triggered a change. I woke up and said, oh my gosh, I thought I knew everything about entrepreneurship. I know nothing. And this was about 15 years ago when it happened. And I uh, committed to investigating what makes an entrepreneur truly successful because I, I wanted to be truly successful. And when I started writing this, like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm writing more than just for myself. I'm writing stuff that maybe will serve others. And so that's how it became books. And now I just thirst to learn about entrepreneurship. I do own directly two companies, a partner or a shareholder in about five other businesses. And it's a passion of mine. My goal, my commitment is to simplify the entrepreneurial journey for anyone that I can be of service to. And, and I try to do it through my books. Do you take your concepts from all your books and apply them to the businesses that you own and invest in? I do. So we're the guinea pig. And some of my colleagues here are like, geez, Mike, do we have to do this? Like, yes. So uh, 
Like for example, Clockwork was a book I released on business efficiency three or four years ago. And uh, I was studying what triggers efficiency. And there's this concept I call the four-week vacation. If you can take out the owner for four weeks, the business has to run itself. You can't cram and scramble. You can't punch before as all the stuff on your list before you leave and then recover four weeks later. Too much happens in that period of time. So I started taking these four-week vacations as a test as I'm writing the book. My colleagues here started to operate the business more and more on their own without me. And then the president of our company, Kelsey, she came to me and said, you know what? We all need to take four vacations so that we're not dependent on anybody. So that became something we've been testing over the last three years. I'm revising the book now to talk about the importance of all employees taking big block breaks from the business, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the business. The other thing that's kind of funny is with these books, it's like the ultimate accountability mechanism. So like when I wrote Profit First, like I live by Profit First. I have to. If I teach it, but don't do it, people are like, you're a charlatan. So all the books I write, I live by, and uh, they keep me accountable to it. My readership does. I actually love Profit First as well. My background's in accounting and finance. So that book was really right up my alley. I really liked it. My little brother just started his own landscaping business and awesome. I gave it to him. I said, listen, before you start doing any of your accounting, he like started diving into like QuickBooks and stuff. And I bought him a copy of Profit First and gave it to him and made him read it before he started doing anything related to that. I actually just spoke at a landscaper conference, a virtual one because of COVID. But it's funny, like that business community, just like any other business community, you know, they're trying to grow as fast as possible, but the burden of the expenses that come behind that equipment, breakdowns, staff turnover, it's the freaking hard industry. But what we found is when people start taking a profit first, it forces them to find ways to stretch out the value of their equipment. One guy, I love this. He said after he implemented Profit First, he noticed that they were replacing manual tools like wheelbarrows, gloves, like equipment at a super high rate. That the workers were like, you know, they come up in their mulch truck and they throw the wheelbarrow off and it would be snapping a handle. He said uh, it was expensive. What he did was he had every worker write their name on the item they use and said, This is now your gear. He said, The second they put their name on, I put Mike on a wheelbarrow, you're not throwing that thing off anymore because that's my wheelbarrow. So now they're putting down. He says the longevity is like quadrupled. The guys are caring for their stuff just with the markers. The cost was you know a fifty cent marker, and he saved thousands and thousands of dollars over the years, which all goes to the bottom line. What fascinates me is that there's so many opportunities in these industries, like the trades, typically where there's so much opportunity for like what we study in business and psychology that these guys are great at the trade. Like my brother, just as an example. And my dad, actually, my dad's a mechanic as well. Like they're great at being a mechanic or a landscaper, but they're not great at being business people. And so if you can just do these like psychological trick that you can just implement and you learn that in business books, if you can just apply that to a business like that, you can crush it. And that's the idea. So you study finances. We're told like these crazy things like, oh, you know, you got to do a butterfly straddle of the stock investment and stuff, and you got to hedge your moves and you got to know the PL and, and tie it to the cash flow statement. Is really easy to bring complexity to business. It's really easy to add more and more stuff and think that's the path to success. The hard part is actually boiling it down to the essential elements. And when you do these few things that have a big impact, you don't have to worry about it. I'm proud to admit, I look at my PL maybe twice a year when my accountant says, let's review it so we can go into the detail. Every day, I'm using the profit first system. And of all his clients, and he's got a few hundred clients, I'm hands down the most profitable he has by a long shot. 
And he's like, Mike, I talked to you the least about the financials, yet you're the best at it. I'm like, because the financials in the traditional sense really aren't of service. They're more of a distraction for a guy like me. I know a few things. You know, my, I'm not a mechanic. I know how to market. So I'm like, I'm good at that. And I know the numbers are important, but I'm not going to read these financial statements. And uh, I just found, you know, boil it down to the essence of what works. And I think that's true for all entrepreneurs. You don't have to do all the complexity. Just do the essential components that have big impact. You got to find out and know what they are. But when you do those few things that have big impact, you can get to the essence of what you're capable of and your business will flourish. We're going to spend a big chunk of today's episode and conversation talking about your new book. But before we do that, there's a couple of concepts, one or two that we talked about last time that I think are really important. And so I want to talk about them again. And one comes from your book, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, where you wrote, never started a company before, struggling with little or no cash, have no experience, no baseline to judge your progress against. That's good. You actually have a shot at making this work. A lot of people think that no money or experience is actually a negative thing, but you're saying the opposite. Why does having no money or experience give someone a shot at their business actually working? Because necessity truly is the mother of invention. There was a studies done by a guy named Northcote Parkinson. This is from the 1950s. He studied the use of resources and noticed an interesting phenomena. The more available resources, the more we consume it. His studies were mostly around time. And he noticed that the more time I'm given to do something, the longer it takes us to do it. And uh, the less time we're given to do something, the more efficient we become because now time is pressuring us. But this isn't true only for time. It's true for money and, and knowledge. So the more money you have flowing through your business, it's almost uncanny, but we spend so much more. So the lack of money forces innovative thought, forces us to think outside the box. And how do I get the same result without cash? And you find these remarkable solutions. Without experience, you can't fall into the complacency of doing what the industry does. You start breaking the rules. And it's the rule breakers who inevitably redefine the industry. They're the biggest winners. So the lack of those things make you the innovator. You actually are set, I believe, for the most potential for success because you're not going to become complacent. Have you ever read the book Power of Broke? No, I have not. Power of Broke, for anybody listening and you, Mike, who hasn't read it, I highly recommend you do. It's from Damon John, the shark from Shark Tank. It's such a great book. And it, it talks about the same idea of you know the power of broke and having nothing and how that's actually a power for you. And there's a lot of people that talk about this. Gary Vee talks about how you know if you're actually born into a wealthy family, your chances of actually building something successful is probably... Yeah, you have the money and the resources, but you're not going to have the grit and you're not going to, you know, you're going to rely on the money to actually build the thing. Whereas you have to get creative if you don't have the money. There's another book I've been reading called The Comfort Crisis. And the whole concept of this book is as society evolves, everything is around comfort. You used to drive a car, there was no air conditioning. You, you know, if you wanted cool, you rolled on the windows and you drove faster for the breeze. Heated seat. Are you kidding me? But today that's like standard. These things are air conditioning and heated, all standard. And um, they're talking about the effect on our body, that our body is becoming less capable of protecting and serving itself. It's like, wow, this translates not just to our health, this is our business too. The more comfortable it is, the softer our business becomes and the, the less strength it has. So same point. As soon as this interview is over, I'm going to go on Amazon and I'm going to buy that book because I've literally been thinking to myself over the last couple of weeks that like, I'm getting too comfortable. I'm getting too complacent and you know, I'm not in that 
kind of mindset of where I'm quote unquote broke anymore. I don't have that power of broke anymore. And I'm noticing it in myself. And so I'm, I'm going to go read that book. Some interesting discoveries. Yeah. So it turned me on to some health things too. There's another book called Wim Hof, the author's name, but it's called the Wim Hof Method. And it's about exposure to things that challenge your body, but how the body responds by strengthening it. Is he the one that does the extremely cold temperatures? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, yeah, they call him Iceman. Yeah. So the cold temperature. So I've been trying different breathing techniques, cold exposure. But one example is just our own health and biology. Exposure to germs makes your body stronger in defending itself against germs. And one argument that I've heard in this book, Comfort Crisis 2, is you know, as, as we spray everything, we wipe things down to kill COVID, we're killing everything. It's potentially weakening the immune system. Same thing in our business, right? The more money you come from a wealthy family, it weakens that strength system to defend yourself. And when, when the tough times come, you, know, you fall over, you're like, I need money, daddy. And uh, it's not a good way to run your business. Have you come to any conclusions or revelations in terms of how somebody in that situation, whether they're super wealthy or if they've just had a little bit of success already, can kind of combat that? Like, what can we do to get out of that rut? Yeah. So I think when the burns come, we need to earn that burn. What I mean by this is all of us are going to go through challenging times. If we go to wherever that crutch or resource is and that resource supports us again, we won't get the burn. All of us learn through the burn, which you must earn. There you go. That's rhyming. The most impactful point in my life was uh, when I started that angel investing company and I was, I was totally full of myself. I was like, I know everything. I'm so freaking smart. And I lost everything. I had to come to my family and tell them we're losing our house. We lost it 30 days later. We had to liquidate our remaining assets to cover some, some core debt and start anew. It was, it was horrible. And, and I was at a point where I was, gonna, I was thinking, ask friends, try to borrow money, but I didn't. And I, I had to start fresh and rebuild myself up. And every micro achievement I had from that point forward and macro achievement, I look back upon, I'm like, wow, I started building confidence in myself. I did this for me and for my family and for us. I was able to do it. I actually built confidence. I think if someone savior came in and said, don't worry, here's your savior. I'd be extraordinarily grateful in that moment, but I wouldn't have learned to help myself. And I'd face that problem again. You know, there's that song, that country song, when you're going through hell, keep going. When you're going through hell, keep going because it builds this muscle and those problems will present themselves. But now your corporate or entrepreneurial immune systems there. I've had problems come my way and I've been able to adjust faster, more confidently because of what I've been through in the past. It's ironic. Those horrible times in our lives, I think in many cases, we actually cherish in retrospect for how it defines us and strengthens us. What about on the opposite side? What if you're actually doing pretty well? You're comfortable, you know, you're actually making a little bit of money, things are going well. So you feel like you've lost that edge, you've lost that grit. How do you get that back? Is there a way to maybe simulate like being broke or, you know, what can we do to actually get that edge back? So I think we need to set an unaccomplishable goal. So I'm so blessed. And literally every morning I wake up with gratitude for this to be experiencing the level of successes. I've defined it in some regards, impact I'm having on the community, financial comfort um, it's brought to my family, something even more valuable, the time comfort, the flexibility I have. I, I got to do what gives me joy. I'm a I'm a spokesperson for the work I do now. So I, what we're doing today is, is actually my primary job now, write books and talk about books. I love it. But I also realize at this level, I could just say, oh, let's just coast now. 
So I set an unaccomplishable goal. It's my life's purpose. It's actually on the wall here, but it says uh, right there, it says eradicate entrepreneurial poverty on the wall. And I look at that every day. And it's my reminder that that's why I have deemed myself to be on this planet. I got to satisfy that goal. And there's 300 million small businesses that are struggling on this planet right now. People went in with their business having dreams of being financially free, of having personal freedom to do what they want when they want, but they can't because they're now beholden to the business they started to serve that dream. It really is a nightmare for them. And I think I have some formulas to help people fix that. I got to solve that. I haven't even scratched the surface of that. So every morning I wake up with actually growing vigor. I'm like, there's one less day in my life as of yesterday. There's one less day I'm going to live now. I got to hustle. So I actually am growing energy around serving this, this purpose. And, and I think that's how you keep that grit. Have something massive as a purpose. However you define what a massive is. I'm not saying you got to serve millions of people. I met one guy who said his life's purpose, his wife had passed away of a horrible disease early on. And he was a single father. And he said, my life's purpose is to spend time with my two daughters now because they don't have a mother anymore. And he's like, I'm embarrassed. That's not a big purpose. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, That's probably the biggest purpose on this planet to be of service to our own children. Do that. And uh, he found that dinner time was the most important time. He was able to spend an hour or more with his daughters enjoying and celebrating the day. And then he came back to, I remember this guy, I can't remember his name anymore. I ran into him a year or two later. He said, I discovered for a single parent, dinner is what matters most. I started a business like a blue apron for single parents. So it's not just about the meal. It's about the celebration of time together. I'm like, wow. So purpose doesn't have to be the measurable size. It's what you feel internally. And for him, it's just spending time with his two children. That is a massive purpose. And now he's, he's fulfilling it another new level. I think we need set goals like that. Both of those goals are, are awesome. As a single dad myself, I can relate to his a lot. So that's, that's great. One of the other, other concepts you've talked about in your books is this idea around a business plan. And you talk about how a business plan is a waste of time. Why is that? And if we don't need a business plan, what are the three sheets of paper we need to successfully launch, manage, and grow a business? Yeah. So that harkens back to uh, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. Uh, and subsequently, I've kind of modified the three-sheet plan. The reason business plans typically fail us is because they have arbitrary mythical elements and we think they're true. Like one of them is like, you know, I project my business will do, you know, first year we'll do a million. Within three years, we're doing a billion dollars. And oh, and these, by the way, are pessimistic. Like this is worst case scenario. It's total bullshit. We cannot predict the future of our business. Listen, if you could predict the future of business, why not invest in the stock market? If you can predict what's happening tomorrow, you will be a billionaire. So there isn't predictability. I think it was, I think it was Colin Powell who said, you can plan for a battle until the, the end of the day. But the second that first bullet flies, all things are off the table. There's too much variability. There's too many moving parts. So we can have goals and vision, but you can't plan each strategic step. That's why I think business plans are, are rooted to fail and a mistake. In fact, I can prove it. Go to any business that has a business plan and look at the shelf. It is sitting there. It's covered with dust. They're not accessing it because it simply was a hope and a, a plan of trying to see the future, but we can't see the future. But I think what we can do, the equivalent of the three sheets is set a vision document. And the vision document is where we intend or want to be, but don't articulate the path to get there. 
fact, instead of use a technique called tacking, I wrote about that in uh, the Toy Paper Entrepreneur. What tacking is, is a strategy used by sailors. You have a boat, a sailboat. You set an X on the map where you want to go, that island out there on the horizon. And you don't go at it in a direct line. In fact, you use a zigzag pattern because you go as best you can toward the island, but you need to capture the wind. You need to avoid obstacles like other boats, sandbars, catch the momentum, the current of the tide as it's shifting. And you use all this to move that direction. But after a certain period of time, maybe a few hundred yards, then you pull down the sail, you redirect it, you lift it again to go in another direction. And now you're zagging and you zig and zag. And sure enough, you get to that island by zigging and zagging to get there. That's what we need to implement in our business. We do 90-day planning. As of this recording, we're not eight days away from quarter end. Our team is meeting to do our zag. We had a very clear vision of what we wanted to do this year, and we zigged this quarter, and it moved us in that direction, but things have come up, some opportunities, um, some struggles. And so we're sitting down, and we're going to plan the next 90 days out. We can do short-term planning. I think that's smart. What to do in the moment in the near future. We can't plan out the entire future. So set a vision and then zigzag your way there. Tack. Whenever I think of a business plan or something along these lines of planning, I always think of that quote from Mike Tyson that says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? I mean, you can have a business plan and then something goes wrong or off plan and now what? It is such a great quote. And can you imagine taking a punch from Mike Tyson? Like My face would explode. When I see some of these YouTubers that are starting to box some of these guys, I, yeah, I know I can't imagine. It's insane, but it, it is such a good visual because it's so visceral. That's what it's like in your business. It is like taking a Tyson punch. Like your face explodes. You, hopefully, you're conscious at some point after taking that hit. And uh, that's how we have to respond to our business. I think the greatest day for most entrepreneurs, honestly, is the day before they start their business with these grand hopes. We're about to get into the ring with Tyson. We got this. And then you take that first punch and it's like, what the hell just happened? The greatest day for many entrepreneurs is the first day. And that's a shame because then they start losing faith in themselves. It becomes a grind. They become entrapped in their own business. We need to go back to that first day and just simply know that was a vision. Reset that vision. This is what our desire is. And then start doing the short-term planning and reactions to get there. Start zigging and zagging. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Your newest book is called Get Different. And I want to talk about some of the important concepts from the book that I think people listening will get value from if they're trying to start their own side hustle, small business, even a startup. And the first concept is really the overarching idea for the whole book. But you say that being better than your competitors isn't enough because customers rarely care about better. Different is actually better. Why isn't being better enough to win customers? Yeah, because uh, customers came and see better. Imagine you and I had directly competing businesses. Maybe we both own a dry cleaner, for example. And uh, I say, you know what? We're going to be the best dry cleaner in the neighborhood. I'm going to answer the phone in two rings. Any customer calls, we answer the phone within two rings so that they can you know, get whatever information they need. And you say, we're going to be the best dry cleaner. We're going to answer the phone in one ring. Unequivocally, you are better. Measurably, you are better. But the question is, does the customer even notice? The answer is no. They don't. Of course, they don't notice. We can look at our businesses right now, any of us, our own businesses, and say, we got better credentials, we have better experience. You can go through the list of all these ways that you're better. But the customer only notices a few things. And the most common thing they'll notice is the exception. How are you different? Here's an example. My first company was in computer system setups. I was the computer guy. And uh, I was better than my competition in so many ways. The uh, credentials we've achieved, the type of deployments, network setups we did, and all this great stuff. And there were dozens in my immediate area that were doing computer services and regionally hundreds, if not thousands. And we would compete. It was a slog. Every day when you do a proposal, you're competing against five or six other companies and so forth. And then one day, one computer company came into town and they kicked my ass to Sunday. They did with all of our competition too. Company is called Geek Squad. And what Geek Squad did is they threw on these uniforms, these flood pants, tape around the glasses, and these little narrow ties. And they pulled up in their Volkswagen Keystone Cops vehicles. And customers went crazy over it. The reason they did is because it was different. You know, who doesn't want a geek superhero fixing their computers? It was something that was different. Myself and all my contemporaries, you know, we put on our suits, admittedly a little bit too large, shoulder pads sticking out. It looked like a scarecrow, to be honest. Me and my contemporaries were scarecrows, and all of a sudden, in comes a geek, and they dominated. Today, Geek Squad, which sold to Best Buy, is at a $1 billion valuation with Best Buy. Massive. My company didn't do that. And even though I could argue I was better, and I still could argue we were better, technically, superior to Geek Squad, 
they were superior in being different and different wins because customers notice. I love that that story. I think there's also this piece of everybody has a different opinion on what's better. Like, I mean, you have measurable things, right? The phone calls, if you pick up on one or, or two rings, obviously one is better, but there's a lot of things like some people might think a product is better just because it has a lower price, or they might think it's better because it has a higher price. Or I mean, there's a million different things that could define what is actually better for a product or service, and everybody is different. Correct. And the challenge is we see the trees. We're in the forest. It's our own business. The customers are outside that. They see the forest. We have two radically different perspectives. It is so obvious to us why we're better. The customer only knows about 0.01% about our business. And it's at 0.01% that matters. So when I say be different, I'm not saying be different in everything. I'm actually saying be the same in everything. Just pick that one thing that's undeniably noticeable. And often, actually almost always, it's in the marketing because no one has experience with your business until they experience your business. So therefore, the only experience they'll have with your business prior to experiencing your business is the experience they have with marketing. Marketing is your front door for your business. If everyone's front door is black, paint yours red because that's the door that'll appeal to you. In fact, in the book, I talk about that phenomena. I say, imagine you walk into a room and there's 500 people in there and everyone's wearing a gray suit. And one of those people is actually your soulmate. It is your ultimate connection. How do you find them? Well, you'd have to just go through people for hours and hours interviewing to find your soulmate. And honestly, we'd probably even give up. 20 hours into it's like, this is not worth it. This is your soulmate we're talking about. It's not worth it. Now imagine one person in that whole group is wearing red. And I'm saying, okay, your soulmate's somewhere in here. Start the interview process. Well, there's 499 gray suits. There's one red suit. Chances are you're going to go to that red suit first. You're not going to just go randomly through it. They may not be your soulmate, but the fact that they distinguish themselves draw you in to identify and start there. That's the power of differentiating ourselves. It makes it very easily sequentially in a person's mind where to get started. Start with the thing that stands out. It's most likely what you want. Even if it's not your soulmate, that's where we're going to get started. Why do most businesses' marketing plans fail? Is it because they're wearing that gray suit or they're just painting their door black too? Yes. And planning implies commitment. That Colin Powell you know, uh, statement where he said, you know, anyone can plan for a battle, but the second that first bullet flies is outside the window. A marketing plan is a commitment. And when it fails, most people say, I guess it didn't work for me. Plans like, you know, I'm going to do Facebook ads. You know, everyone else is doing Facebook ads for 10 grand. I'm going to do 10 grand. I can barely scratch that dough together, but I'm all in on this. And you do it and it fails. It's like, well, Facebook's not for me. And this was so costly. I'm never going to market again. And we give up. The word plan implies commitment. And I think that's a grand mistake. I think we need marketing experiments. Experiments implies testing. There's actually an expectation for failure. There's an expectation and experience to learn from failure. So marketing experiments is what we should do. These are very low cost, low dollar, low time investment efforts we make to see how our community responds. Something out here, and if we get a little traction, then amplify and improve that. If it doesn't work, great. Now we know that little thing that didn't work. Let's try a new variant or a whole new thing altogether. So plans are risky because we think it's an all-in or all-out. Experiments is a learning process. One thing that I actually tend to talk about quite a bit is copying someone else who is doing what you want to do and is having success with it. I even hear some marketing influencers or gurus say that 
they go into the Facebook ad archives to look at what their competitors are running for ads. But I think you feel a little bit different about this strategy. So why does copying best practices from your competition almost guarantee your marketing will go unnoticed? Yeah. So here's the big risk is there is a process in every brain of humanity called habituation. It's a process where our mind is wired to ignore stimuli that we already have quantified as irrelevant. So it's white noise. Here's a class example with uh, email marketing, for example, maybe five, six years ago, I remember getting my first email that started off with the words, Hey friend, Hey friend. And when that happens, I never experienced that before. It's like, Oh, I have a friend calling me a friend. This is a very friendly thing for them to say. They're not even calling me by my first name. That's how friendly they are. And I started to read this. I'm like, Oh, this is irrelevant, smarmy marketing. This is not for me. In that one moment, habituation kicked in. My mind started to program. When the next email came in and started off with, hey, friend, I was like, mm, last time, not relevant. I skimmed it real quick. It's like, no, nope, not relevant. Spammy marketing. The third, hey, friend, and ever since, I've never looked at them. It's the automatic delete button because I know it's not relevant. That first person that did the hey, friend was a genius because they broke a mold something that I, I didn't expect. When something unexpected presents itself, how our mind is wired, we actually have to evaluate it. There's a whole reason, there's a biological reason why we have to. The second person though, the copycatter is now starting to make this white noise. And by the third or fourth, it becomes ignorable when we see it's not relevant. And you don't see it just in marketing, you see it in all aspects of life. In, uh, I live outside New York City here and uh, fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, They've changed your sirens. 20 years ago, it was a high, low whale. People were dying because of this. Literally, not the people who are trying to rescue. People are walking across the street and not hearing a screeching ambulance coming humming down the block and was running people over. The reason was habituation. Our minds got used to this in New York. You hear the high, low, high, low over and over again. It's not relevant. We actually totally tune it out, even though it's super loud. So what they did is they changed the sirens to squeaks, honks, they had to interrupt that pattern so it jogs us into paying attention again. It's a great lesson for marketing. If you are doing the same high low as everybody else, you are just being ignored. If you are the first one to introduce something new, a new flavor to your community, something they haven't experienced before, they have to pay attention and you'll capture them. So I think the great lesson in what the competition is doing is when you see a pattern that other people are replicating, that's the one pattern you should break. Other than just that, tagline to not copy of, hey friend, what else made those emails spammy? And how do we make sure that our marketing isn't spammy like that? So there's actually three stages of effective marketing that that I found in my research and I put into Get Different. I call it the DAD framework. It's an acronym, D-A-D. And these three elements need to be checked off to be successful. First of all is be different. I'll lay out the three elements and I'll give you an example of how I did it. So first, be different, meaning break through the white noise. The second element, the A stands for attract, needs to speak to the customer. And uh, I outlined like there's 15 different elements that speak to a customer and you can blend these together. A couple are, does it serve you know, a need or does it invoke a curiosity or does it simply entertain? Is there a reason to stay engaged with this? Does it speak my language? That's a big one. Does it have my lingo? Do you get who I am? So we need to communicate that. A lot of these spammy ones say, you know, I'm on my private jet. You can have a private jet too. I'm like, first of all, I give a shit about a private jet. I don't want a private jet. And you're bullshit, mate. You don't have a private jet. 
So don't lie to me. You snuck onto a tarmac and took a picture there, pal. There was an instantly disconnect. These marketers often put themselves in such a superior position and put the recipient in such an inferior position. Now, if anything, it'll maybe invoke jealousy or envy, but it's not going to evoke connection. So that was one of the elements. They failed to do what's called the attractor factors. And then a lot of these marketing don't have the last D, which is direct. Direct is a specific call to action, and this is the key, that is reasonable and safe. A lot of them are too big of an ask or they're too ambiguous. They're not clear. So tell the person what to do and be very clear, but it's got to be safe. Like If you were looking to buy a car, you come into my car lot and I'm like, hey, uh, give me $100,000 and uh, find you your dream car, Robert. Who are you? Forget it. But if I say, give me your cell number so I can send you pictures of our inventory and we can find your dream car that way, then you're more likely to comply because it's a reasonable ask. Now I'm moving you toward the final transaction where you'll get your dream car and I'll get my commission. I'll give you an example, an email just of how I did it. I noticed my contemporaries, other authors, when they do their email blasts, they're sending them out and it has you know, black and white text, which of course it's, it's a black font it's a white background, some pictures maybe or something. It's like, okay, black and white is the common noise. What if I send out an invisible email? So I took a white font, put it against a white background. I sent out an email blast in, in very beginning in black text that said, this is the first ever invisible ink email. Click and drag below to highlight the message and reveal the message. And people went wild over this. It was different. I don't know if you've ever received an invisible ink email, probably not. So that has to invoke curiosity and interest. So we looked at it. Now it was attractive because it harkens back to the past. As a kid, you maybe played you know, past codes and stuff with friends, use some kind of decoder ring, some kind of invisible ink thing. So it harkens back to the past. It also invokes curiosity. What I was doing was trying to build my list for the Get Different. I said, hey, you just experienced an invisible ink email. That's different marketing. I have 99 more ways that you can do uh, unique marketing like this for free. Please sign up for my list if you want it. So as a reasonable ask in exchange, I was giving them something of a value where they can replicate this and other strategies that they just experienced. And that was, of all my emails, actually, historically, that has been my most effective ever. So that, that's an example of something that you can do that would change up what we regularly experience. Have you found people start to use the invisible ink emails? Here's what's shocking. No. And it's a gimme. Like If your community hasn't experienced it, send it out. But I know why they're not doing it, because there's a fear trigger. So this is very interesting. In my research around marketing, I looked at just how our brain operates. And if we look back in the early days of humanity, like I'm, I'm talking about like the hunter-gatherer days, when we were in tribes, our survival depended upon compliance with the tribe. So if you're like, hey, to the tribe, let's go hunt a woolly mammoth. And everyone's like, well, I'm in. And I'm like, no, let's go for the saber-toothed tiger, man. Now I'm out. The tribe is committed to something. And there you are getting that. I am kicked out of the tribe because I'm not trustworthy. I'm going against the tribe. I'm out in the tundra by myself now, and I'm not going to be accepted back in. I'm more of a risk. And if I'm out by myself back in those days, that's a certain death. I am done. So back then, being different, challenging the status quo meant certain death. And that is still wired into our reptilian brain. Societies move very quickly, but our brain's kind of chugging along at a very slow pace. So our brain is wired to not do different because that means we'll be excluded and that means death. The other part though, which is weird, is when we do different, we also know that's the only way to distinguish ourselves and stand out. So there's this kind of battling effect going on in our mind that we want to be noticed without being noticeable. When people discover this invisible ink, 
most people are like, oh, that's cool, but I can't do it in my community. That's the battle going on. That if I do something and I get rejected by my community, I'm dead. The truth is, if you did replicate it, the worst outcome that can be happened is that experiment fails and no one engages. The best case is people are like, wow, I've never seen this before. When you do different, when you're the first to do it, rarely do people replicate right away. That first, hey, friend that went out, I bet you that person was doing that for a little bit, a little while. And then all of a sudden, it catches on like wildfire because other people now see it as safe and they start cloning the community. So do something first. And I'm consistently shocked how long it takes for people to catch on. The Invisible Ink email will catch on one day, but I'm going to milk it for all it's worth until it does catch on. In the same vein of this TV show of Undercover Billionaire or... There's another show where they basically just take somebody who's been successful in business, drop them in a random city with no money and tell them to figure it out. If you were in a situation like that, or you're going to launch a brand new business today, you can't use like your brand, people know who you are, any of your books, anything like that. What would you use though that from your knowledge that you know today that you didn't know maybe when you first started your first businesses that you could use to increase the speed and the probability of the business you're starting success? I absolutely would get my first client by offering whatever I'm doing for free because the first client is the hardest client to get. But the second client wants to know who else are you working with? In fact, everyone wants to know who else are you working with? That is the assurance they want in the quality of product or service you offer. The first client is a marketing source. I think the mistake I see and I made with my first business was got a charge, got a charge, and now I'm reducing my price. And I'm trying to get that first client and negotiating. If I simply went to a marquee client, the big name in the industry, and said, Hey, I will provide my service to you at no cost in exchange for you for being a referral source for me, meaning I'm going to refer all my future opportunities to you as a referral source. And I simply ask for your honest truth, speak to them and tell them this is what your experience is like. That exchange is significant because now I have a marquee name, the big name in the industry, and I can say, That is my client. And they're going to back me because that's the agreement. Now, every other client is so much easier to get. And I can come out hitting premiums. I don't have to kind of fight my way up, start at a low price point. There is no negotiation. I got the number one client. You can be the number two. And I'd start using that to foster a lot of opportunity. You've written six, seven, eight books, something along those lines. Seven books. One coming out this Christmas. Wow. Quick turnaround. Yeah. It's a children's book. Actually, if you can see it right above my shoulder, there it is. I can see that. I'll have to pick up a copy for my son. Oh, there you go. It's called My Money Bunnies. How it came about was uh, so many people into profit first. They're like, I wish I could teach this system to my children. And I'm like, I got to write a children's book. So this is my first experience writing a children's book. It's been a blast. It took me about a year to get it done, but it's My Money Bunnies. And it's a very simple and hopefully extremely fun way of implementing a profit first like system in your personal life as a kid. I've loved all your books. So I'm sure that uh, I love that one. And you know, my, obviously being into money and investing, I'm looking forward to when my son is old enough to be able to have those conversations. So, oh, it's gonna be so much fun. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. So I actually just signed my first book deal to write my first book. And so I'm, exci- nice. yeah, so I'm excited. Um, and I've actually talked to people from the audience. I know there's, there's actually quite a few people in the audience who are writing their own books too, whether it be traditional published or self-published. What tips do you have for somebody who's looking to write a book? Do it. I think the world is starving for great books. Let me put a little asterisk next to that. I don't think the world's starving for more books. I think the world is starving for great books. You know, there's a huge churn in books. 
So go for it, but put everything into it. You know, put your soul into this book. And my other tip is give it all away. I think one of the fear people have is when they write a book, if you give everything away, every ounce of your knowledge, you'll never get an opportunity beyond the book itself. But here's what I've experienced. I put every ounce of my knowledge, hopefully presented as concisely and effectively as possible in my books and as entertainingly as possible in all my books. And I found there's two types of readers. There is a community of do-it-yourselfers, and that's the 99% community. Like Most people are reading books simply because they are seeking answers. They are your best marketing force. If you put everything you know in your book, that community will tell other people saying, this book has all the answers, and they will perpetuate the marketing. 1% of the readership reads a book and says, now I found my source. I don't want to do this, but I know this guy knows how to do it. And they come to you for more. Because I put everything I know in Profit First, everything I know in Get Different, we have an unbelievable amount of people calling and saying, I just want to do this book, but I want to do it right. So I want you to do it for me. So it's built businesses behind it because everything's in it. And the vast majority that's already shared, people just perpetuating the concepts because they're doing it on their own successfully because everything's in there. So put everything you know into it. And the likelihood of success, I think, is a multiple over cutting a book short. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. At the end of every episode, we have a segment called the action plan. And in this segment, I like to give people who listen to the podcast three different things to go do when they're done listening to the podcast. I think too many people read books or listen to podcasts or just consume educational content and then not actually take action on it. So my plan with this action plan is to get people to actually take action. And so the three things are a principle or habit to implement in their life, a book they should read, and then the very first step or action they should take when they're done with this episode. So first one, Mike, which habit or principle do you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? Random acts of kindness, hands down. Actually, just yesterday, I just went around our community and was just picking up garbage for an hour. And here's what's the power of a random act of kindness. It feels good doing it. And I think what you'll realize is when you put things out through your business and so forth, when you feel that reward of just doing feels good, amazing things come back to you. I believe actually marketing is the ultimate act of kindness because when we have a great business or service and we put that out there, when you market and put it out there, you are being kind. But it's also scary. As we, we talked about earlier, it's scary to do different and get noticed because of that reptilian part of our brain. Random acts of kindness starts building that muscle. So start doing that immediately and, and never stop. And it, listen, it doesn't have to be big stuff. You could put a quarter in a parking meter. You can just say a friendly comment to someone when you're walking by, but just keep doing that and it'll build that muscle. I've actually been doing that a bit myself lately. I was at a gas station the other day. I had to pick up a case of water and I'm waiting in line. And this woman walked in. She was very distraught and she had asked the cashier if anybody had found her money. Anyway, she ended up apparently lost like $500 of cash on the ground or something from the ATM. And she started crying and she's like, I don't have enough money to um, fill my car, my gas tank. Like I'm literally stuck in this you know, gas station. I went over and I filled her tank for her and love it. I don't want like any pat on the back for that. But the point is like after I left and I did that, it was like 50 bucks, you know, not the end of the world. But after I left that, I was just so motivated. And like I did it for her, but like I was so motivated that like that was probably one of my most productive days that I've had in a long time because of that random act of kindness for somebody else. And how good you feel and how good she felt. It's funny. I was in a situation too. I was driving somewhere and stopped by a place to get a bite to eat. There was a line and there was these two guys, young guys at the front of the line ordering food and they were trying to pay up and their credit card or debit card wasn't working. And the guy's trying to make a call and the, the, the cashier was kind of like getting anxious and, and they were afraid. It was becoming a bad situation. And so, uh, you know, what I don't know their food was, it was like 20 bucks. I walked up and said, Hey, I, I think you guys may have dropped this. I, I saw us on the ground and uh, I grabbed 20 out of my wallet and I picked it up and said, I think you guys dropped this. And uh, it kind of gives me chills. So they paid for their food. And the one guy, they were walking away one guy looks back and he's like, he just says, thank you. And I'm like, I said, brother, you have done the same for me. And he starts walking, he turns around and again, he's like, thank you. It felt like there was a shift in what he's going to do for the next person. And that felt good. And this is a little ways back now. It's a month later. And I still feel the energy of that. Like that's the funny thing is it doesn't need money. This, the examples you and I gave was a little bit of money. It's just doing something kind for someone else. is just such a good experience for everybody. That gave me chills as you told that story, honestly. And I had like a, a tiny, tiny one yesterday. I was leaving the gym and I was at a stoplight and there was a guy walking across the street and he looked very 
he looked like he probably wasn't in the best spot of his life. Uh, he looked just sad and angry on his face as he was crossing the street. And he like looked at me quickly and I waved to him. I don't know why. Like I, I didn't tell myself like I was going to wave to him. I just, I just did. And he like didn't do anything at first. And then he walked like five or 10 feet more and he turned around and like had the biggest smile on his face, waved at me and then just kept going. And it, awesome. it was just like that's the most awesome. random thing ever. And it had no money, nothing. Like I just, that, no, that's, that is, oh, I'm getting like teary now that that is the ultimate exchange. There's a movie called the butterfly effect, which actually I haven't seen. I got to see the movie, but there's this concept that a butterfly flaps his wings somewhere and it can trigger a monsoon somewhere else. You know, who knows? That guy may have been on this downward path and who knows what the thoughts were going on. And maybe it's going to result in harm to himself or someone else. And now maybe, maybe it turned and he's like, I got potential. Maybe he delivered flowers to someone. It's like, you don't know the effect that can have, but I do know this. It's a good thing. There's some, you know, not to take it on a turn for worse, but there's some pretty crazy stories about like the smallest little changes of people like walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. Like there's some really crazy stories about that. Like if you had just said hi to somebody, you know? Yeah. You can save a life. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Mike, what has been the most influential book in your life? The most influential book in my entire life was uh, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie. I read that when I was 22. I was actually having heart palpitations at 22 because of self-induced stress. It is, I think, a pinnacle book on stress management. It's Listen, if you do therapy and stuff, I actually have done therapy. I do therapy. I think it's great. This book for the $15, I got a used copy for like $2. It was the greatest investment ever. It gives such good tools that are perennial. They live on forever to navigate stress. And uh, I can't say I'm stress-free, but I'm so stress-reduced. It's like, oh my God, it's, it's been amazing, that book. That's the second book now that I'm going to add to my list from just this. Oh, you haven't read that one? I haven't. I haven't even heard of it. So Dale Carnegie wrote two pinnacle books. One's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was one of the first books around modern influence techniques. It's still probably the best book in that category, in my opinion. And How to Stop Worrying and Stop Living. It gets a little old Englishy because this book is now almost 100 years old, but man, it just works. I think a lot of Anthony Robbins' work and more modern stuff was all based upon Dale Carnegie's work. Yeah. Warren Buffett actually says that Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is one of the most important books in his entire life. Yeah. That's, that's probably number like top five for me. How to Stop Worrying and Start Living is number one. When this episode's over, what is the first step or action that somebody should take to improve their life, career, or business? So you can do it with one word. Starting today, call yourself a shareholder. So let me give some context to this. We call ourselves entrepreneurs and business owners, and I love what that stood for. I love what that meant, but it's become bastardized. There's some pretty big names that say entrepreneurship is about hustle and grind. It's about workaholism. It's you know what's your grit and work your ass off mentality. You know, entrepreneurship was never meant to be the doer. It was the visionary. It was the person who choreographed resources around them. It was someone who says, "I have an idea, and I'm going to take a risk of organizing people and things to make it happen." It wasn't about doing the work. It was about affecting change and facilitating work. In fact, the number one job of an entrepreneur is not to do the job, it's to provide jobs. So I think we can take on a new term and that's shareholder. And I use that myself now. When some people, people say, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm an author and a shareholder in these small businesses. I'm a shareholder in say, for, I am a shareholder of Ford stock. I own like nothing, a hundred shares. But 
as a shareholder, I have two responsibilities. One is I've taken risk by investing in the company. I share in the profit. Two, I give strategic direction, vote for the board of directors. When there's a, some other strategic decisions on how we're directing the company, we, the shareholders, vote for it. As a small business owner, you are a major shareholder, maybe 100%, or if you have a partner, you're probably 50% or more. You own a lot. And we got to start behaving consistently with that. Give your business strategic direction and thank you for contributing to our society and taking the risk of having this idea and putting it into action, share in the profit. Call yourself a shareholder and you'll start acting like one. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So Mike, what question do you have for me? Well, I'm really curious about being a single dad. When you became a single dad, how did that change you and how you behave? It had a huge impact on me. I, it happened young. So I was 22 when we found out, 24, eh, 23 or 24 when I actually became a single dad. And so it really impacted me mostly from a mindset and money perspective. And so growing up, all I cared about was money. Like that's all I, I just wanted to be rich. I just wanted to be a billionaire. Like so much so to the point where have you heard of superlatives? Like in high school, you get like best eyes, best smile. Yeah, the ESTs. Yeah. Yeah. So I was voted most likely to be a billionaire in my high school okay. class, which, like, yes. yeah, which is cool because like that's exactly what I wanted. And then I realized over time, and mostly when he was born and as he grew up a little bit, and he's still only three, but I realized that the people with the most money don't necessarily have the most time and they don't necessarily have the most control over their schedule and get to do what they want. And I feel like oftentimes a diminishing return there of time and money. So it really shifted how much I care about becoming super wealthy versus having control over my time. And so it's been a big shift in terms of actually caring about the time more than the money. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Where can the audience go to connect with you, pick up all your books, read anything you got going on? The place to go is gogetdifferent.com. So that's the brand new book, but I created this resource page for it. The book's titled Get Different, but the website's Go Get Different. And what I think is interesting about this is I do free resources there, including 100 ways to market your business. So that Invisible Ink one I shared, that's one, but there's 99 additional ways to market that are different. They cost nothing or very little, but they're great experiments to get started. And I think if you have a business that does good things, you have a responsibility to market accordingly. And I, I hope that script at gogetdifferent.com will help you do exactly that. I will put links to all Mike's different resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. I've gained a lot from the books and all the resources he's given away over the years. So I highly recommend you guys go check it out. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Robert, thank you, brother. It's been a joy. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.